0: Taking Stock
1: with Mandy Johnston. This
0: is News Talk.
1: Hello and welcome to Taking Stock. I'm Mandy Johnston. I'm going to be keeping you company for the next hour or so with some more great guests, and we're going to be looking at some stories happening here in Ireland and further afield. I just want to give my thanks to my colleague, Joe Lynham, who's the News Talk business editor, who did an exceptional job standing in for me here last week. So thank you for that, Joe. Now, On to today's show, what's coming up? Well, we've got less than a month to go to Budget 2024. So we're going to take stock of the warnings, the wish lists and all the promises that we've been hearing all summer long. We're going to do that with Business Post editor Daniel McConnell and Jim Power, who's the economist and, of course, co-host of his own podcast, The Other Hand. Later on in the show, I'll be looking at a new book that claims many of us are walking around in a state of blur. Yep, that's information overload and it's much more acute than we think. The author of that book, Susan Ford Collins, is going to be joining me to tell us how we might deal with some of those issues that we're all facing and finally, Credit Suisse has been in the news a lot recently. It's been bailed out by its government and taken over by UBS this summer. But did you know that there's an Irish man at the helm there now? His name is Colm Kelleher. He's possibly the most powerful man in European banking and very few people have ever heard of him or that he actually hails from Cork. So we're going to hear his story and what's going on at that bank in a moment when I'm joined by Financial Times journalist Owen Walker. Now you can get in contact with us as always at Taking Stock at newstalk.com. I'm also open on x at stock nt. Now first up today you're all familiar with the phrase you can't even think straight. Well in her new book blur clear the way ahead even in the worst of times. Susan Ford Collins writes about navigating life's most challenging moments. The book itself actually Highlight some real life stories of business leaders who've had success during the pandemic. And it also focuses on how they use their skills to preserve themselves and, and prevail through tough times. I'm delighted to be joined by the author now. She's an executive consultant, she's a leadership coach, and a researcher, Susan Ford Collins. You're very welcome to News Talk.
0: Hello, I'm glad to be with you. Now, Susan,
1: before we get into the book um, itself, um, I just want to go back a little bit and talk about you, your career. You've been coaching people all over the world uh, for many years. You've written several books which have been very successful about the issue of success and how to garner success for yourself. Just tell us a little bit about your background and, and what led you to, into this profession.
0: Well, I started at the National Institutes of Health in Washington, D.C., right out of uh, graduate school. And I was the youngest research psychologist there. And after a year, I was getting very discouraged because I wasn't learning anything about success or health or any of the things that I thought I would learn. And I stood up in one of the big weekly conferences and I said, I think we're on the wrong track. We should be studying highly successful people to figure out what skills they're using and to see if we're missing one or more and how we can teach them. And they were not excited. (laughs) The whole room laughed. And it was one of those life-changing moments where you either cave, turn red and fade, or you go, I'm on to something. I know it. I've been thinking about it. It's been keeping me awake. And as a result, I spent the next 20 years shadowing the greats of the planet and bumped into them in magical ways. And they were excited with the 10 skills that I discovered. They said, yes, I'm doing that. Doesn't everybody? And I said, that's the point. Yeah, everybody doesn't.
1: (laughs) That's such a good point. They probably did you a favour by laughing at you. That probably stirred you on uh, uh, or spurred you on a little bit more. And actually, it's so right what you say about focusing on success rather than failure. Anybody out there who's kind of learned how to drive? Whether your mother, your father, or an instructor teach you. You're always told, look at the destination. Don't look at the obstacles that are in your yeah. way or the the what's at the sidelines. So why would you do that uh, when you're trying to be successful? So that's what that's what brought you there. It's a very interesting interesting concept. This issue and this book in particular, blur. It's a very distinctive word. It's not really um. It's not just distraction, it's confusion. Can you just tell me about why you think people need to be mindful of this at this particular moment in time?
0: Well, I think COVID put a lot of us in blur. Uh, It put business in blur. Uh, It put parents in, in blur with kids home and not knowing how long they'd be out of school. I think it put us in blur when we lost family members and friends. Uh, But blur for me started before that. Um, My husband and my sister were both diagnosed with cancer, and we all have these cataclysmic life events that put us in blur. And they both died, unfortunately. But fortunately, by the time COVID hit, I had figured this out. I had discovered the 10 skills that I've been teaching to CEOs all over the world in over 4,000 training sessions were the skills that I needed to really consciously focus in on now that I was in blur. And so after confusion and not wanting to drive and getting lost in parking lots and just feeling muddled, I started using the first success skill very consciously every day. And that skill I call success filing. It's taking time each day to acknowledge ourselves for the tiny successes we're having that are heading us in the right direction. And we've been trained as kids to wait for other people to acknowledge us, to give us stars or cookies or praise us or graduate us. But when it comes to blur, we have to go back to the fact that you are in charge of your own self-confidence, your own self-esteem. You are the one who have to create the dreams that move you forward in life. Mm. So that was the first skill and then I put the other the rest of the skill set in place and boom. Then what happened was I started getting awakened in the night. You know how ideas are. It kept waking me. You've got to write this. You've got to write a book. You've got to write a book. And I'd already written three books on success and traveled around the world. And, you know, I wasn't up for a book right now, but it didn't stop. And Mm. so finally I went, I give up. I'll write it. And I I, I kept telling people I had been in blur and they went, Please write that book. I'm in blur. I know exactly what you're talking about. And so I think it's a book whose time has come.
1: Yeah, well, I'm very glad you did. I'm sure many people can identify with the problems um, that you mentioned. And I'm very sorry for your losses. It must have been a tremendously difficult time for you. Um, and then we're looking at somebody else or even ourselves uh, what can we look at and say, yeah, actually, that's happening me. I'm overwhelmed now um, by events. Things are too much for me. I'm not thinking straight. Are there things we can look at either from within or can we look at other people and say, you know, that person must be going through so much and maybe try to help them, if not help yourself?
0: I love it. Both, both things are absolutely true. Within myself, I find my, found myself getting lost. I couldn't find my car and parking lots. I started being afraid of things that I was never afraid of. I felt like my schedule was overwhelming. I'm somebody who's worked my whole life. I suddenly just didn't trust my own thinking. Mm-hmm. But fortunately, it didn't affect my career area at all. It affected me on everything else. And it it was also compounded by it suddenly became a caretaker. In, in addition to what I was doing. Now, what did I see in other people that made me say I have to write this book? The same thing, confusion, lack of self-confidence, just look a look in the eye like, I don't know what I'm doing anymore. Like all the usual things, the Sunday night dinners, the, the fun things that we did, um, the way my business was going, all of it just seems to go away and get muddy. Mm. And What I discovered was that we, in those cataclysmic or very challenging times, we try to forget. And that's actually the wrong direction. We need to learn to remember, but to remember in a very specific way. That, as you know, having looked through the book, I go through in great detail, because we have to update our past memories, not keep replaying those horror scenes Mm. that wake us in the night, give us sweaty hands, make us afraid to ourselves, And we also have to start dreaming again. Very specific, clear, detailed dreams. It's one of the skills. It's called hologramming. It's being able to see it, feel it, taste it, smell it in advance. They're mm-hmm. powerful creators, but I don't think we use that creativity to the extent that we could. And that's why when I studied the people who really did great things for us during COVID, like Eric Juan, who started Zoom. I love his story. He was a a tech student in China. He had a girlfriend 10 hours away by train. He hated those train rides. And he'd sit on that rumbling train and say, I'm going to come up with a collaborative software to be able to connect people so they don't have to get on rumbling trains and go to long distances. And thank heavens he did because he kind of saved the day during COVID, and yeah. then there were graduate students in Philadelphia who, um, one of them went to New York. He forgot his wallet. We've all done this. He asked his friend, "Would you advance? Would you pay my bills while I'm here, or pay you back when we get back?" Got back to Philadelphia, and he started writing a check to his friend. He said, "This is dumb. We pay everything by cell phone. Why are we writing a check?" And as a result of that, cre- they created Venmo. So, you know. It's, A lot of people take the muddle state and the confusion, and they do what I was saying. They detail the solution. They find the way ahead. And if we're smart, we will gear down and learn the basics of what they're saying so that we get the get the advantage of their creativity.
1: And we're going to go into some of those basics in just a second but if you're just tuning in you're listening to News Talks Taking Stock with me Mandy Johnston and I'm speaking to the author Susan Ford Collins about her new book. It's called Blur Clear the Way Ahead. Um yeah, you were just talking about that zoom story which I read in the book. I, I none of us had any idea that Zoom started uh, in a romantic way. Who would have thought when we were all, you know, <laughs> desperately trying to clamber to meetings during COVID that it actually started out on a train that way. But yeah, fascinating, <laughs> yes. fascinating insight. You're talking about... um you know, the power of of dreams and having a dream and manifesting something. And sometimes we can do that in a negative way, manifest things in a negative way. But one of the things you talk about when you're talking about aspirational dreams is about co-dreaming, which I suppose in a business sense is very important because no matter how skillful you are, how ambitious you are, how clear your dream is, you can't really do things alone. So can you just talk us through that concept of of kind of dreaming or co-dreaming with others?
0: Yes. And I'm so glad you picked up on that. It's a very important part because you can't be an effective leader and have a wonderful dream if you can't communicate that people with a team of people who will support you in getting there. And I work with CEOs all over the world. And some of them are so controlling and so determined to be in charge of everything that they can't build their business because they they won't share their vision. They won't share the dream. And so people don't know really what they want. So co-dreaming, is one of the 10 essential skills. And in the case of Blur, having people around you say, yeah, but remember, this is what happened. Let me give you some details, some context. And having a team of people who, when you're having an off day, can say, I know exactly what we need to do. I'm on the same page with you and moving ahead together. So if you want to be successful yourself, you have to dream. If you want to be successful with others, which is the key to leadership, you have to co-dream. Mm. You have to share your dream in details. You have to answer all the questions that other people ask. You can do it on schedule. You don't have to be interrupted all the time, but share it. So they get excited about it. And even more important, so they bring their creativity to the dream. Not just your ideas.
1: Now, in the book, Susan, there's a um, very specific technology of success toolbox, which uh, we don't have time, unfortunately, to go through today. But there is a very step by step guide as to how you can apply the solutions to fi- if you did find yourself in that state where you can't cope with the circumstances around you. But I want to ask you just two questions at the end. The first is, can you kind of give us a description of what that is? Um, information or life overload situation looks like. So somebody might recognize themselves and say, actually, do you know what? I am just a bit overwhelmed. And then the second and last question I wanted to ask you is give us some kind of guidance and tools as to what you should do if you find yourself in that situation.
0: I think we inherently know when we're in that situation, we don't feel like ourselves. We feel muddled. We feel confused. We feel dazed. We, we're we tired, we don't sleep well, um, or we sleep well and then we're awakened by fears and concerns. I think we know this. Mm. I hear people all the time saying, Susan, yes, I know exactly what you mean by blur. Now, what to do, and I, I do spell out these skills in this book, but in The Joy of Success, which is the first book in this Technology of Success series, I take it one through ten skill by skill by skill but in this book kind of like a toolbox i give you the skills when you need them because in a toolbox the tools are not numbered and in life they're not numbered either so it's really important to know oh i know skill three i know i need to dream now i know skill five i need to use experts and this is one of the things that really goes off when we're in blurs we're afraid to ask because we don't want to look stupid and the only stupid question there is, is the one you don't ask, Mm. because that's the one that will trip you up. So when we're in blur, it's important to know, I need to lean on other people's expertise until I get my balance again, until I feel myself strong again. And, you know, have some co dreamers, get some people around you that you tell what your dream is. And, and, you get them to be the people that you can go to when you forget, when you're just so muddled, you can barely get out of bed. So the 10 skills is what you need. And that's why I said, I felt like the universe kind of tricked me in writing this fourth book in the series, because, you know, at the time I was so busy focused on taking care of Albert and my sister and my business that I didn't realize I was dropping out the very steps that make people successful. Mm. And so I say to you, please don't do that. That's why I've written these books. Well, and the skills are simple and they're direct and they're all there. And Blur the, is also available on Audible if you're a listener.
1: They, they certainly are all there. And it's a very interesting book. And I've really enjoyed speaking with you, Susan. And I wish you every success with the book. Um, but for now, we're going to have to leave it there. That was Susan Ford Collins. Susan, thank you so much for being with us today.
0: You're very welcome.
1: You're listening to News Talks Taking Stock with me, Mandy Johnston. Join us after this short break when we'll be looking at Credit Suisse and the Irishman attempting to save it. (music) You're welcome back to News Talks Taking Stock. I'm Mandy Johnston. Now, if you cast your mind back to March of this year, you might recall that the Swiss government were forced to uh, underwrite a takeover of a stricken bank, Credit Suisse. It was taken over by its rival, UBS, for almost $3.2 billion. And that was well below its market value. But they had to do all of that because it was a real fear um, that depositors might trigger a a new global banking crisis. Now, there's a flurry of lawsuits from Credit Suisse investors who lost billions of dollars in that process. And they have a new CEO. So we're going to look today at what happened next after the takeover and what are the fortunes of Credit Suisse at the moment. And we're also going to look at a gentleman called Colum Kelleher who's chair of UPS at the moment and he is an Irishman. Now we're joined to go through all of that by Owen Walker who is the Financial Times European banking correspondent and he's been writing about all of this in recent weeks. Owen you're very welcome to Taking Stock.
2: Great. Thanks very much, Mandy. Great to be here.
1: Now, before we get into what's happening now and Colin Kelleher and who he is and what he's done, maybe just uh, take us back a little bit and recap what happened to Credit Suisse back in March and then the takeover in June.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, it's um, it's kind of been described as a, a very slow car crash that, that then just, you know, really sped up in the final um, few days. You know, the, the fall of Credit Suisse has been something that's been going on for Several years, people even argue since the financial crisis, but it's certainly been in the last three years that it's just gone from one scandal to the next, that share prices collapsed and uh, depositors, clients have just been putting their money and switching to other banks. So this really came to a head um, nearly a year ago in, in October. There was a some um, fairly, uh, well, I mean, there were completely unfounded social re- uh, social media rumours about its imminent financial collapse. Um, which led to, uh, to to depositors pulling hundreds of millions of uh, of their deposits and uh, really started to look like a bit of a, a run on the bank. They managed to weather that storm, uh, but really the, the, uh, the problems were, were set in motion. And it was at that point that UBS started to think, well, we need, might need to consider being ready to take this bank on. In March, it all came to a head, uh, again, more kind of ill-judged comments uh some some social media rumors um and by that point it looked absolutely terminal uh shareholders were pulling money uh the share price continued to to hit rock bottom prices and on march 15th the uh swiss government and the uh, financial regulator decided that was enough was enough this 167 year old bank which is in the center of Switzerland's uh, economic growth in the, the 19th century, the time was over and, and UBS had to, to, to step in and take it over.
1: Yeah, just an incredible story and obviously affected by external issues as well, like Silicon Valley Bank and everything that was happening there that jolted confidence in, in the banking system. But went on then and UBS took over. Um, tell us about what happened after that.
3: Yeah, so this was a,
2: a sort of a frantic few days. As I said, March 15th a Wednesday afternoon, um, the, uh, the the finance minister of Switzerland called in Colm Kelleher, the, um, the chairman of UBS, and said, uh, we need you to take over Credit Suisse, because the alternative is a nationalisation, and we can't really uh, stomach that. Uh, and then over the next four or five days, roughly about 100 hours, there was uh, lots of frantic discussions and negotiations and deal-making. And although UBS were kind of prepared for this, they wanted to make sure that if they were in a position to, to have to take it on, they weren't taking on lots of hidden risks that, uh, that they weren't you know, hidden in Credit Suisse's balance sheet that had been growing over the previous two decades. Um, so they negotiated lots of um, support packages and, and guarantees from the Swiss government. Uh, part of that, um, to make the the deal more enticing for UBS was that the Swiss government and financial regulator decided to wipe out $17 billion uh, worth of bonds, these kind of quite technical, they're called 81 bonds, which uh, can convert into equity when when a bank runs into trouble, but just wipe them out, um, which was a a really strange decision when you think about these bonds should have been further up the queue uh, than equity investors. I think you mentioned earlier that the business was sold for about just over $3 billion. Um, Mm. So that was money that went to equity investors, but these bondholders were wiped out, and that was really the most controversial part of the whole deal. And as you mentioned earlier, this has led to um, scores of, of lawsuits which are, likely to
1: go on for years. Mm. Yeah, look, that wiping out of debt is not something that is alien to us here in Ireland. We've we've, <laughs> we've suffered our own uh, and all of that. So where is it at at the moment then? Has the deal been um, passed now? Is it waiting on more regulatory, um, uh, you know, um, box ticking or like what's the status of that takeover? Is it done?
2: Yeah, so we are pretty much exactly six months on from the deal being finalized and announced, Uh, it wasn't until June that um, it was finally completed. Um, And at that point, ever since then, um, UBS has been taking stock of Credit Suisse, looking at uh, parts of business it wants to keep, parts it wants to get rid of, um, who it wants to keep around in terms of the management team, um, who is not going to be sticking around. Um, And as part of that situation, I think they've realized that you know, there weren't uh, too many hidden problems within the bank that, that they suspected there may have been. And to your point earlier about the the problems uh, in America with Silicon Valley Bank and several other regional U.S. lenders, a lot of those problems within the global bi- banking uh, system have kind of ebbed away a bit. So I think there was much more confidence they could make a better mm. deal of this. In doing so, they basically decided not to take the government up on any of their support Um offers, which was mounting to about 109 billion Swiss francs of, of liquidity and and uh, and, uh, and support on losses. So uh, by doing this, UBS are now in a pretty good footing in terms of what they think they can get out of the deal. They're not relying on the state. Mm. And to your point, I'm sure this is something that the Irish bankers know that the pitfalls of all too well. Um, they've decided they want to go it alone. And um, shareholders responded that the share price is up more than 30 percent, and it's there's an election coming up in the next few weeks in, um, in Switzerland and initially this was a very unpopular deal but I think a lot of the measures that UBS, UBS have taken in recent months have taken a political sting out of that uh, transaction and it's really not likely to become a, a hot political issue in the, uh, in the general election in, in the next two or three weeks.
1: Unpopular then why? Are, are there big redundancies expected as a, as a part of this?
2: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, what you've got with Credit Suisse and UBS are by far the two biggest financial groups in Switzerland, um, uh, and both internationally and domestically. Uh, There was a one key decision that that UBS was considering about whether to keep Credit Suisse's domestic business. And if they did so, which they ultimately decided to do, uh, it is likely to result in uh, thousands of job cuts. They've already announced 3,000. There's almost certainly going to be um thousands more um branch closures um uh, and you know this is clearly something that uh, domestically is not popular and also i think that there's a feeling that, that they don't want a bank or one single bank domestically which has a far greater balance uh sheet than it's uh, the country's gdp and they don't want to be over reliant on that mm. so that was initially where the, a lot of the skepticism about the deal came from but i think that has uh that has sort of subsided to, to some extent
1: Indeed, and we saw the departure of Francesca McDonough, who um, Irish listeners will be familiar with as well, former CEO of Bank of Ireland. If you're just tuning in, folks, you're listening to News Talks Taking Stock with me, Mandy Johnston, and I'm speaking with Owen Walker, who is the Financial Times European banking correspondent. Um, oh, now I should reference also that yourself and your colleague, Laura Noonan, have written a quite extensive article about all of this, but also um, an article that focuses a lot on a gentleman called Colum Kelleher, who is described in this quite Quite rightly, as Europe's most powerful banker, and I would suspect that not a lot of people have heard about him. Um, so, just don't want to take us through who Colum Gallagher is, first of all, at the you know, and the position he holds at the moment.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Um, he, he is the the chair of UBS, and he was absolutely central and pivotal to all the negotiations about the the rescue of Credit Suisse. And he's now chair of UBS, which is. Um, probably the most important or you know, significant bank in Europe. Uh, there's a uh, in in Switzerland. Chairs have more power uh, generally than, than CEOs, uh, unlike in um, uh, you know the Anglo-Saxon world. So it's it, it is a very powerful position. Um, he is a, an Irishman. Comes from a very large Cork family, um, uh, originally from from Bandon, um, but uh, he actually grew up in in Warrington in, in Northern England. Um, he very bright guy, um, went to Oxford, uh, and then uh, had a uh, a lengthy successful career in banking, mostly at uh, Morgan Stanley in London and uh, New York. Um, but it was a kind of role that, that mostly went uh, behind the scenes. Uh, it was fairly overlooked, even though he he played a pivotal role during the financial crisis, uh, going back 15 years, where. He was uh, chief financial officer of Morgan Stanley when when they had their own near death experience. So that was that was one of the reasons we wanted to do this piece because he played a, a very important role. Fifteen years ago, during the last financial crisis, he uh, equally played arguably the most important role during the uh, this year's mini um, banking crisis. Uh, and so we wanted to kind of maybe draw some parallels, but also he's a guy who's been quite open about. Uh, feelings of um, post-traumatic stress on the back of what happened, what he went through, fellow executives went through during 2007-2008. And uh, I think, you know, he, he has told friends and, and, and colleagues that those feelings came back to him uh, in March this year. Um, so, yeah, that was kind of very much the, the the reason to focus on the piece. And it was quite interesting to, to kind of get into to that. You know, we don't often hear about uh, bankers complaining about how bad they've had it during these periods of uh, crisis for, for very good reasons. Mm. Um, but also I think it is a, is a tale that is uh, un- un- not, not really talked about very much and so we're interested in that.
1: Yeah, and reading your article about that time, you really did get a sense of the drama and the difficulties behind the scenes and what individuals were were going through. But look, he is one of the few individuals you might think, given his experience in 2008, that is uniquely equipped to make the merger that he's now trying to oversee a success.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, he has, uh, you know, decades of dealing with regulators, dealing with, you know, making those decisions at uh, crunch times when, you know, you're making a phone call, which the result of which could could result in tens and thousands of of job cuts. So, uh, you know, he knows that he takes that responsibility on uh, on his, his shoulders. And um, uh, you know, but I think, frankly, because he'd done it previously, he was much better prepared. You know, I mentioned earlier when Credit Suisse was running into problems about a year ago, that's when UBS und- under Combs' uh, leadership decided internally to start drawing up plans and, and make sure they were prepared mm. so that when they got that call when he got that call in fact from the uh the swiss financial regulator he was ready they were ready they had a uh, you know a 12-point plan or a list of demands and an a4 piece of paper to go into that meeting with two hours later mm. um and they'd done extensive due diligence work so yes the that he'd taken a lot of lessons from from 15 years earlier and um and I think that's what we're seeing with, with at the moment, we're only six months in, the kind of the relative success so far of, of this takeover.
1: Mm. Just reading about the man, his family, um, he's not the quintessential or typical banking type that you might uh, expect at a level like this. He's kind of really understated, is my assessment. Very hard to maintain an existence beneath the radar at that level, Um even reading about you know his journey through Morgan Stanley where he was effectively passed over for the top job there at one point he managed to work well with the person who succeeded that understated nature seems to have served him very well
2: yeah absolutely i mean they, they um they bonded they had a they had a um, they they both came from um, large Irish families themselves and so they were work, both working in uh, um in a you know a large U.S. bank, and so I think they had a he, you know um, James Gorman, the, the chief executive of Morgan Stanley, who's who's still there now though he's stepping back. He's from Australia, but um, they had a lot in common. And um, you know, be, becoming CEO of Morgan Stanley was a job that Colm had had coveted for many years. And, and certainly when he was CFO, I think he probably thought, well, I'm I may be next in line here um he didn't he didn't get that job he missed out um when the chief executive john Mack, stepped back um and at that point he decided well i'm i'm not going to get this job uh, you know james is um 6 months younger than me but i'll be his number 2 i'll be you know i'll i'll um i'll be president and we can run this business together we can turn it around um he kind of stepped back a bit semi retired a few years ago and then few jobs came in, uh, offers came in. Interestingly, the chairmanship of Credit Suisse was offered to him at one point, which he, he turned down because he thought it was uh, you know, too much of a, a, a troublesome bank. Clever. But when the UBS offer came in, I think he, he just thought, this is it. This is a, this is a great job for me. Um, and um, yeah, I don't think he expected it to be quite so big so early. It was only a year into his time as chair that the, uh, the deal uh, cropped up. But, um, you know, I think this is for him, this is this will be the pinnacle of his career.
1: Well, look, um, it's certainly a fascinating career. It's a fascinating read, as I say, by Owen Walker and Laura Noonan in the Financial Times. It's still up there if anyone wants to take a look at it. But Owen, thank you so much for taking the time today to take us through all of that. We really appreciate it. That was Owen Walker of the Financial Times. Thank you very much, Mandy. You're listening to News Talks Taking Stock. Join us after this short break when we examine the warnings and the wish lists and the promises for Budget 2024. (music) You're welcome back to News Talks Taking Stock. I'm Mandy Johnston. And finally, today, this week saw the return of Doll Aaron, which was dominated by housing and, of course, Budget 2024, which is set to be delivered by the government on the 10th of October. Um, Michael McGrath and Pascal Donahue out there very anxious to try and dampen down some expectations of a budget day bonanza but it's been a summer of warnings and wish lists. So here to take us through what those warnings and those wish lists are, are Daniel McConnell who is editor of The Business Post and also Jim Power, economist and co-host of The Other Hand. You're both very welcome to Taking Stock. Good morning, Thanks, Mandy. Wendy. Now, Jim, I'm going to start off with you and all those dire warnings that we've seen over the summer. Central Bank this week out warning about inflationary budgets. What's their concern, and can you just give us an overview of the other type of warnings that the government have received?
4: Well, we've seen warnings from the Central Bank, from the Irish Fiscal Advisory Council, and others basically saying that with the Irish economy now operating close to full capacity, that injecting fiscal stimulus on October 10th would be dangerous and could fuel inflationary pressures. And if you look at where the economy is going at the moment, you know, we're at full employment, virtually 4.1% unemployment, 2.6 million people working. And you just look around the economy, it still does strike you as an economy that is growing at a fairly healthy pace, unlike Europe and indeed unlike most of the rest of the world at the moment. So what the, those that are warning are worried that if you pump money into an economy like this, you're just going to fuel the inflationary pressures that are already quite strong in the economy. And indeed, the central bank this week, in discussing the inflation prognosis, was saying that the external factors that have been driving inflation since the Ukraine war began, such as food prices and energy prices, they are starting to ease a bit, but that domestic forces have now come to the fore So specifically, they're talking about the strength of the labour market. They're talking about the inflation we're seeing coming through in the services sector, which is obviously closely related to the labour market. So they're just concerned that if you pump more money into an economy like that, you are just going to exacerbate um, an already hot economy and cause inflation to go even higher.
1: Mm, Yeah, worried about negating the efforts that are underway to try and and control and curb inflation. Danny, can I bring you in here, please? Um, We often see that politics and economists can pull politicians in very different directions. Um, But against the backdrop of expectation and this knowledge that we all have about how um, healthy the government exchequer is at the moment, could these type of warnings actually help Michael McGrath and Pascal Donoghue in their efforts to sort of temper expectations?
3: Oh, what a question. I I, I think, you know, the biggest job and the hardest job that both McGrath and Donahue have to, I suppose, grapple with in the next few weeks is is dampening down that expectation because it's been growing since the publication of the Strategic Programme update. This is the update that the Irish government has to give to Europe every April. And at that point, I suppose, the government's own figures were talking up a a potential surplus between now and 2026 of about 65 billion. And that has obviously kind of fueled. A large degree of excitation not only from within the government backbenches but from sectoral interests and, and and people across the board, saying, you know, it's now time to spend the cash that so, you know for, for many decades people would have argued the money simply wasn't there to to put in in, in place the, uh, the services that are badly needed. The government can't also hide behind that defence anymore. So what you're now seeing is a much more nuanced argument around: well, these are only windfall. Uh, tax or potential windfall tax receipts, so they can't be spent for ongoing or recurring spending. They have to be done on, on kind of very, or have to be spent very carefully mm. or put away into rainy day funds. So that's where I suppose uh, Michael McGrath and Pascal Dunning are trying to, I suppose, put a limit on, on the expectations. But I suppose, as, as we've been reporting in recent weeks, um, you know, it, it, it's not just, I suppose, the core budget, which the government is admitting it's going to breach its own spending limit of 5%. It's It's the sort of one off. Non-core spending, uh, you know, in relation to Brexit, you know, the the, the continuing kind of expenditure on COVID 19 measures, and then obviously dealing with you know the influx of, of migrants from from Ukraine. But on top of that, and this is where a lot of economists are, are getting very worried about, is this idea of once-off um, spending you know, that, that emerged during COVID that has continued since the um, the cost of living crisis really kind of came to the fore. And I suppose you know there's a danger, it, you know, if things are recurring, you know, not just once, but twice or three times. Are they really will off? And I think that's where some of the arm bells, some the likes of the Irish Fiscal Advisory Council, are really coming. But certainly, it's music to the ears of backbenchers who are eyeing up elections next year, and would you know, want to see as big a giveaway budget as, as is possible? So you know, the sort of warnings around fiscal prudence or inflationary measures, you know, you know are largely falling on deaf ears of politicians who want to see more investment in roads and services in their communities that they can go. And put in their leaflets when they're going to to knock on doors and and, and take the the votes of of their electorate. Mm. So it, it, we're always we're at we're at that very dangerous point in the political cycle where common sense often goes out the window. Uh, and political kind of um, you know, political needs kind of come to the fore.
1: Yeah and Jim timing is is everything really when it comes to this type of a spending package. Um, Danny mentioned the stability programme update date in April. Um, a very different tone then from what we saw in the summer economic statement. How do you think that the government can project a prudent budget when we're at a starting point really where they're openly saying that they're going to exceed their own targets not just this year but next year as well?
4: Well I mean, it's very difficult to justify um, exceeding the spending limit that was agreed. Uh, you can argue that there are, I guess, uh, exceptional circumstances at the moment. You know, there's still a bit of a legacy from COVID, but more importantly, um, the cost of living increases we've seen over the last 18 months are having a huge impact. So, you can justify these one-off measures, but at the end of the day. Um, allowing spending grow in excess of what the government initially agreed to uh, is difficult to justify. But if you think of the real politics of this, this is either the last or the second last budget before the next election. If you think back to the election in February 2020, um, at that stage, Fine obviously had a very bad outing, lost a lot of seats. And a lot of the blame from the backbenchers particularly was directed at Pascal Donoghue, Mm. who had introduced a very prudent budget in October 2019. So this is the political tightrope at the moment. And I I think at the end of the day, um, if government is to have any chance of improving the opinion polls, this is going to have to be a reasonably stimulatory budget. And... um, You see, and if it's not, if it's a very tight budget and if all these areas that people are looking for are not addressed, that increases the possibility of Sinn Féin coming into government. And of course, Sinn Féin has been making all sorts of promises on increasing spending. So these people who are issuing these warnings about Mm. prudence should should think long and hard about the consequences of that prudence and what it might ultimately mean for the management of the public finances.
1: So are you, are you saying then that the government should kind of lean into it a bit more than they are, Jim?
4: Well, I, I, I think from a political point of view, and you cannot just look at this in isolation from politics. It is all about politics at the end of the day. Um, I think the government will inject quite a bit of money into many areas of the economy. Personally, where I would like to see most of the money being spent is addressing the biggest problem socially, economically that we are facing in this country, which is housing. I would like to see the kitchen sink being thrown at housing in a responsible way um, because we need, obviously with all public spending, we need to make sure that it's not just the inputs we look at, we look at the outputs as well. So I think carefully targeted spending at housing is the way to go because if you solve the housing crisis in this country, ultimately, you solve most of the problems we're facing at the moment.
1: Mm. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Taking Stock with me, Mandy Johnston, and I'm speaking to Daniel McConnell, editor of The Business Post and economist Jim Power. Danny, I'll ask you to take your editor of The Business Post hat off for a second and put back on your editor, political editor hat on for for a moment and just talk about um, what are the red lines for the various government parties going into budget 2024? Because as Jim said, this is an important one. It may be the second last budget, but in the election cycle, this is for sure um, going to impact on how they do in the local elections anyway next year?
3: It is without question. And I think this is a very important budget for Fianna Fáil in particular because it's the first time in 13 years that they've held the portfolio. So much has been made of the fact that the last time they held the portfolio was Brian Lennon, who was the man who introduced the, the much-hated and, and the maligned uh, universal social charge. So we've seen in recent weeks is a, a real attention from the Fianna Fáil side of the House on doing away with or even kind of making a reasonable cut uh, to the Universal Social Church. and Gael have basically said they're happy enough to go along with that, but they would much rather see the entry points to the higher rate of tax uh, be, be increased again. They, they, they did a sizable enough increase up to forty thousand last year. They'd like to kind of do another similar kind of increase this year to about forty two and a half, but all all depends because the, the government have set out that their tax bill is like their tax package is likely only going to be around one point one billion. So you know the kind of space there is limited enough. Um, but I think also, you know, I think again, as we were kind of looking at it in recent weeks, you know, there are certain things that the government are already committed to, uh, committed to a new public sector pay deal, which obviously has to get, you know, obviously have to factor in that's going to be very expensive. They're also going to have to factor in another sizable increase in in uh, health spending, which will obviously dampen them. You know, they're wiggle room in terms of what, in terms of new measures what they could do. But one of the measures that's very likely to happen. Is an, is an expanding of the free book scheme? You know, for that was expanding you know, the the free uh, school books to primary school level kids last year. Mm. That's likely to be extended to secondary school because that was proved that proved to be very popular. It wasn't an extremely expensive measure, but it's one that kind of you know, they could, it was a tangible win that kind of resonated with people across the board last year. And um, you could argue, you know, does it make sense to give you know rich and, and kind of wealthier families the same kind of benefits as, as poor families who probably need it more? But I think you know, from from a even from middle class areas where I think a lot of people are feeling disenchanted with the government parties, you know, this this was a measure by which the government could could regain a bit of ground.
1: Mm. Mm. And I
3: think I think James earlier point, you know, I think there was a sense the government, if you if you think back to the run-in uh, to next or to last year's budget, there have been several months of calls from the opposition, particularly Sinn for a mini budget to try and address the cost of living crisis. The government didn't do that; they held fire until budget day, and then they unleashed this huge package of measures. And almost out Sinn Féin, Sinn Féin in terms of the almost went beyond what Sinn Féin were calling for, and it left, them, left the opposition with nowhere to kind of go and nowhere to attack them, really. Um, and I think you're likely to see another attempt at that this year, and certainly the benches both been seen again and seen fall in particular are looking for that. The other flying ointment in relation to all this is what the Greens want, and, and they have deliberately, for some reason, over the summer, held fire. They haven't been as, as, those, as, uh, as porous as, as the other parties in terms of their wish list. You know, you know, you're trying to kind of dig away at them in the last few weeks. They've they've been told almost to kind of keep their wish list under, on, under fire. We know, or presumably one of the things we do know, is that Roderick government is going to concentrate on the childcare area that, you know, they're committed to reducing childcare costs and also kind of looking to fund the industry properly. Um, and that was seen as a, a, another big win. But there's, I suppose, been criticism around the speed of the rollout and, and the size of the, 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 the money committed to it, or the amount of money committed to it. But well, so I think, you know, you know, as a starting point now, you know, however many weeks away from the world we are now, we're likely to see a big childcare package that will look at, you know, tackling child poverty. Obviously, Eamon Ryan was, you know, has his big thin win in terms of carbon taxes, so they're there already. But it'll be interesting to see just what impact the public sector's pay deal has and the health overrun has on all these other new measures, because that, that will really determine an awful lot.
1: Yeah, well, that's a great overview of um what each of the parties in need. And, and as you say, some of them have held fire over the summer, but some others haven't held back at all. I don't know whether there's going to be any leaks in the next couple of weeks that they can do, because most of it seems to be out there, as is the want um uh Uh, at the moment. Anyway, Jim, just want to bring you back in on some of the macroeconomic questions about this as well and going back to those warnings um, that IFAC have had about, in particular this notion of a a, a sovereign wealth fund, an infrastructure fund by Michael McGrath and Pascal Dunahue that has been mooted for some time. Why is it that they are um, against this or not in favour of doing something like this? Surely that makes sense to, to do something that can invest in infrastructure now on the one hand and put money away for future pensions in the in the future,
4: yeah, I mean, I, I think um, you'd struggle to disagree with the notion of introducing a sovereign wealth fund, uh, because we are definitely in an era now where you know corporation tax receipts are absolutely soaring. We're going to take in over twenty-four billion this year. Ten years ago, we'd be looking to take in four billion. Um, hopefully, this will last, but obviously, at some stage, it it, it could go south. So, building up those um, reserves for longer-term issues such as infrastructure, such as ageing population, and so on, makes eminent sense. However, my one reservation would be: um, I think the economy is crying out for infrastructural investment at the moment. Um, you know, there are transport issues to be addressed, particularly public transport. Um, I believe the metro should be built. Ultimately, to be honest, um, we also have the housing issue that I referenced. Uh, Government needs to do a lot of different things to start that housing problem. So uh, I think there are strong arguments to be made at the moment for strategic expenditure to address the infrastructure deficits and the housing deficits in the economy. But failing that, I think the next best option would be to put as much money as possible into the strategic investment fund as quickly as possible. The one thing we don't want to do is throw a load of money on budget day at a lot of different people, sort of a scattergun approach, which we've often seen in the past. We'll all wake up the morning after the budget feeling slightly better off, but nobody's significantly better off. So I would much prefer a targeted approach. And we also have to remember that, and I think Daniel alluded to this earlier, about these sort of one off spending measures that become more than one off If they repeat a second time, are they really one off? The problem we should always remember with public expenditure is that once committed to, it is very difficult to roll back from it. It becomes an entitlement. It becomes embedded in the system. So I I would like to see personally... Stringent control over um, current expenditure.
1: Mm, easy to give out, it's just impossible to take back. I think, exactly. Look, this is the first real non crisis budget for this government. And as you said there, really what might be absent is some kind of real vision or overarching objective at the moment. But perhaps we'll get all of that on a uh, budget day on the 10th of October. For now, we're going to have to leave it there. My thanks to Daniel McConnell, editor of the Business Post, and also to Jim Power. Thank you very much for joining me today. Thanks, Mandy. Well that's it for this episode of Taking Stock and while we broadcast at this time on Sunday mornings we're always available as a podcast first on Friday mornings on the News Talk app or wherever you get your podcasts from. My thanks as always to all of today's guests for giving us their time. I also want to thank the producer of Taking Stock, John Fardy with Simon Keane on research and Hugo de Silva on sound. Next week we'll be looking at Western profits trapped in Russia by the Kremlin and if you want to get in contact with us about any of today's items you can email us at Taking stock at newstalk.com. Coming up after the break, we have Jonathan McRae with Future Proof and then it's Gavin Riley with On the Record. But from Taking Stock with me, Mandy Johnston, thank you very much for listening today and enjoy the rest of your day.